this morning, as we move into our last kind of our last time to be looking at this this series, we'll be in First Corinthians thirteen, as we have been for the past few weeks. If you didn't grab a Bible or bring one, uh, grab one just like I've got. I'm going to be on page um, uh, nine fifty nine and nine sixty, just so you can follow along if you want. Well, we've been in this series talking about the mirror. That's been our focus. Um, we use a lot of God language, in, in, in just in general. Uh, you might not under, know this, but it's actually quite controversial in, um, in Islamic territories where missionaries are present, whether or not the missionary can use the word Allah to describe God, right? Because Allah is just the generic word for God. It's like using God around here. Somebody you're talking with maybe is, just uses the word God, and you just assume they're speaking about the same God you're speaking about, when in fact they could be very different. When Oprah, for instance, speaks about God, which she does frequently, she means something very different than what I'm about to describe today as God, right? And there's a little bit of a difference there. So you have to be kind of careful about what you're talking about when politicians of any stripe and of any country invoke the name of God to bless them while cursing their enemies. They're speaking of a God that is foreign to Scripture. Even when Christians use the word God, Frequently, frequently, we use them, use that name in a blasphemous way. We use God to cover over our, as Brennan Manning said, our pessimism, our narcissism. We call ourselves spiritual while at the same time being rude and bitter and short-tempered with each other. We call it discipleship. We call it correction. We call it rebuke. We call it all sorts of things. But one of the interesting things about the Bible is that when it describes God, it famously describes, and you might be even to fill in the blank, God is, oh, wow, man, well, good. That, that's all good. I was expecting God is love, right? You've heard that probably many times. Uh, well, that's one of the things we say a lot, God is love. And just in the same way that God can be kind of a generic word for just a deity in the sky, in which we might agree or disagree with what that deity might be doing. So as we use the word love, we can mean many different things. Hallmark means something entirely different about love in their Hallmark cards than I mean as I described this morning, love. As we sang this morning of the reckless love of God, the raging fury of love, the call of love, the power of love, the transformation of love, the fact that love resurrects and transforms. Love does all of these things, right? That is a powerful description of God and of love. We see in this text, as we have been working through it, Paul trying to describe both God and the things that God is deeply invested in so that we can see what we ought to invest ourselves in. What should we be all about? What should we be thinking about and striving towards and worried about and working on? Paul puts it this way. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Remember, mirrors back then were polished metal, so you couldn't see your image very clearly through it. But you can, of course, see face to face. I can see your face, you can see my face. So Paul says, it's like we look into a mirror, but it's dim, we can't see ourselves. But one day we will see face to face. That mirror will be cleared off, and we will see clearly who we really are who we are in Christ, who we are in the power of the Spirit, who we are in this God who is love. And what does it look like? It looks like this. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these 
is love. It's as if Paul is saying, if you could look into that mirror clearly, you would find these things buried inside yourself. As though there's this lump of gold. You know how gold and gems and these things work. They're buried under mountains of rubble and rock and dirt. And we're born into this world, aren't we? And the first thing we're born into is a broken family. Even the best family here is pretty messed up. Can I get a witness? All you kids. Go ahead. This is your chance to throw your parents under the bus. And the first thing we do is enter into a broken. The first thing I did when I held my daughter was think, man, I'm going to blow this. Right? I mean, we enter into brokenness. And brokenness gets piled on top of us and piled on top of us and piled on top of us. And then you go to school and it gets so much better. Then you go to, go to work and it's just a blast. Right? I mean, we just, we just continue to have this stuff piling on top of ourselves and the good news is this the good news that i declare is that from the very beginning of our book that we call holy sacred the word of god it begins like this god made mankind in his own image and in the image of god he made us male and female he made us which means buried inside each and every person you encounter is the very likeness of god the very image of god And how you treat them is how you treat God. And when God looks at you, he sees the gold that has been buried underneath all of the years of rubble. And he tries to clear it away to bring out in you all of that glory, all of that beauty, all of that value. And he says, now do the same for others. Imagine a world that looked like that. You might just call that good news. Imagine a church that looked like that. You might just call that a nice place to sit down and enjoy life. And God is calling us to that. He is calling us to recognize that which is eternal. Christians talk a lot about hell. You know how many times hell shows up in your Bible? Fourteen. Judgment. We talk a lot about judgment. You know how many times judgment shows up in your Bible? 163 times. That's a lot. You should pay attention to that. You know how much sin shows up in your Bible? It's a fair amount, over 300 times. A lot of talk about sin and the things that are breaking us and tearing us down. Do you know how many times love shows up in the Bible? Well over 500. Outstripping every other theme and every other thought are the words that we have said over and over and over again that God comes to you in your seat and says, I love you as you are, not as you should be. Because none of us are what we should be. And so scripture calls us to remember the things that are eternal. The things that God continues to pour into you and try to get out of you. is the same thing that we should be pouring into ourselves and into each other. The things that we want to get out of people and the things that we want to pour into people should be faith and hope and love. These things which challenge and drive and shape us. Because let me tell you, what you believe about God is what you believe about love. And what you believe about love will determine what you believe about God. I know exactly the God you serve. If I spend 20 minutes with you serving in any place in this building, I know exactly what each one of you think about God's love. It's not secret. You wear it on your sleeve. You wear it how you behave. You wear it in everything you do. Paul does something really scandalous as he digs into something important. Towards the end of this, this letter that he writes, this letter of Galatians, as we 
continue thinking of it. He says this. This won't sound surprising to you, but it is shocking. I'm going to read it, and then I want to talk about why it is so shocking. But he says this. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, for most of us, that isn't a very scandalous thing to say. It's not shocking to say. Most of us aren't terribly troubled about, some, about circumcision. I hope not, one way or, one way or another. Um, And so for us, this doesn't sound, this might just sound bizarre, if anything. But as I tried to, and I I know that sometimes I'm spicy for spiciness sake, all right, but this is not me trying to be spicy. I'm just trying to draw a one-to-one comparison. What would the equivalent description be today for Paul to say, uncircumcision means nothing, and the closest thing I could imagine is burning a flag? The closest thing I can imagine is burning a flag to create the kind of ire that you would get. Because what Paul is essentially saying here is that circumcision means nothing. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish history, and some of you Christians here today know a lot about it, you know that circumcision was the first sign of the covenant. That this is deeply tied into the Jewish people. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And you might know that as you get towards the middle, things go really bad for them. And they are taken from their homeland so that their temple and their religion and everything is brought down into the dust. And all they have left to hold on to for what makes them who they are, what makes them Jews, what makes them the people of God, are two particular things, circumcision and Sabbath. And so what Paul says here, when he says circumcision means nothing, and uncircumcision means nothing, is him saying the very thing that makes us the people of God, that you have thought, made you who you are, that made God even love you, none of that means anything. Only faith working through love. There could be nothing more scandalous. It would be like you saying, you know, democracy, It doesn't matter if you're with Democrats or Republicans. They're all going to tar and feather you, right? You can't say freedom stinks. I don't care about it. No matter what, you're going to get pushback, right? This is the kind of thing that Paul is doing. He is saying, we have pledged our allegiance in many ways, and we have cut our skin so that it reflects this. And all of this means nothing, only love. That's powerful. It's powerful because what he is saying is, I don't know entirely what our bodies are going to look like when they are resurrected and eternal. But whatever it looks like, Paul is saying, that whole circumcision thing we've been doing, it's not going to mean a whole lot in the kingdom of God. That is all transitory. What does last forever is this, faith. Of course, not a generic faith, not just believing in something generically, not just a generic God, and not just a generic love, but faith that is rooted in Jesus Christ, Lord of lords, King of kings, coming to conquer and rule over the earth. This one we put our faith in, and this one demonstrates what love looks like, and that is both important things. Not only must we know who God is and who he is and what he is like, but also we must know the power and frequency, and power of love. How powerful is love? Jesus puts it like this. You have heard it said. In fact, you've heard it written. You've heard it in the synagogue. You've heard it from the pulpit itself. Love your enemies. Oop, nope. Love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the worst people in the world do that? And if you greet only your brothers or your sisters, your friends, your family, what more are you doing than others? Don't the most wretched people you can think of do that? Do not even the Gentiles, non-believers, do that? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's love is so powerful that Paul declares in another passage, while, while we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, Jesus died for us. And this, of course, is the most extreme of all examples, but it's good to hold the extreme up because if we can catch a vision of the extreme things like loving our enemies, maybe we can work on loving our neighbors. Maybe we'll catch some of that stuff. And so we are working extremes here, but let's work with the extreme. The extreme is this, that love is so powerful a thing that while we were the enemies of God, God came to us knowing that the outcome of him coming to us to reach out in love would be us killing him. And Jesus says things like, if you are going to follow after me, you must take up your and follow me. Crosses are for killing, right? Well, more for dying, as it were. It's a powerful thing. Why is it powerful? It's powerful because it exists forever, that everything else is passing away, but the declaration of Scripture is that love is not. And it says here that we must be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You can imagine how this could be pulled out of context and used to shame and browbeat each other, but that is not the context of what is being talked about here. What is the perfection of God in this text God is perfect because even when people hate him, he loves them. And if we would be like God, even when people hate us, we must seek to love them. That is how powerful love is. That is why love is eternal and circumcision is not. That is why we are called again and again and again, page after page, story after story, mercy after mercy, grace upon grace, truth upon truth, transformation upon transformation. Love changes us. The scriptures declare it, and they call us to move into it, not to sentimentalize it, not to make it soft and easy, but to make it strong and costly. If you look at Romans or at 1 Corinthians 13 where we've been, Paul says so many scandalous things. He says, if I knew everything about this whole book, if I could explain every single mystery of Scripture, it's worthless without love. You have the biggest brain, doesn't matter, worthless without love. You could have the biggest paycheck and give it all away so that they give you all of the awards. The Nobel Peace Prize goes to you everything all of it is nothing without love. But what does love actually look like? Let's sit with it a second. Love is patient and kind. Let us, brothers and sisters, friends and maybe even some enemies, let us search our hearts for a minute. Search your life for a minute. We'll take 30 seconds with each of these and ask the question, does my love look like this?
Am I patient and kind? Love does not envy others what they have or what they are going to have and doesn't boast when it gets its way. It is not arrogant, but in humility sees others as greater than itself. It is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It is not easily irritated. It doesn't fly off the hinges. It doesn't get so mad that it says something that it wishes it hadn't said. Love isn't resentful. It doesn't hold on to grudges and bring up the past. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in sin. It doesn't rejoice in things that are of, of the darkness. It instead rejoices in the truth. And if you made this kind of a checklist, yeah, it's, it's something to sort of stop and think about. This is not sentimentality. This is the call to follow the real living God who has walked with you. And I don't know exactly what your life has been like, but if it's anything like mine, it's mostly been mistakes. And times when God has said, all right, we're getting up again. <laughs> we're doing it again. Another step, another fall, another step, another fall, and God continues to walk with us. That is the God who we describe in Jesus Christ. That is the God we serve. That is what love looks like. And that is the call to love for us towards others. When Paul says if we could look into the mirror and we could see faith, hope, and love, we could see the gold that's in us, we could see that image of God that has been covered over by all the brokenness in the world, and we could restore that to its rightful place and image, we would be a people who are just shining. Do you remember Paul said that? In which you shine like stars. What makes you shine? Isn't it, isn't it faith? Isn't it hope? When everyone else has no hope. You're the person who says, hang on, light's coming. God's still in charge. Jesus still believes in us. We're still pushing on. The Holy Spirit's still empowering. The gates of hell will still not overcome. We are still charging forward. We are not done. God is with us. Do you have the power in the moment when everyone else is spewing frustration and hate and saying things they wish they shouldn't have said? Are you the person who says, stop, We love each other here. And we will speak with patience and kindness and we will seek to not be arrogant or rude and we will not insist on our own way but we will seek together the messy business of love. How many of you all have a family? Not kids necessarily, but you have a family. Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles. Some of you guys are aliens how many of you all have put up with some junk in your family? I got more hands that time. I, was, I must have been speaking some truth. I mean, we know what it's like to bear with one another, don't we? Don't we know what it's like? Uh, don't we know what it's like to, to struggle 
with somebody who's driving us nuts? <laughs> I got more laughs and hands. I didn't get hands that time. That was just laughs. We, get, we know what that's like. In fact, in fact, we're willing to pour it out in terms of letting people stay in our houses and, and we give them money and we might put them on our insurance or you might do all kinds of different things to try to help somebody out. You might walk with them. You might listen to them bellyache and complain, but they're your family or they're your friends. You've been in it so long and you've got this close-knit group of people that you say, I love them. That's beautiful. I'm not asking for anything to change there except for this one thing. Why not not open that up a little bit more? Just let it loose a little bit. And let it expand a bit more to include more people. More people to have faith in. More people to have hope in. More people to love. More people to reach out to. I'm struck by this passage in 1 Peter 4, 8. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. An interesting thing about this, this last end of that verse is that love covers over a multitude of sins is actually repeated so often in Scripture and repeated so often in our early texts that we have from the church that we think it might have been a creedal statement, something that they would say to one another, kind of a tagline. That, imagine that tagline going over like you just say all the time, love covers over a multitude of sins. You made a lot of mistakes, but love covers it over. I screwed up a lot, but love covers it over. Like over and over again, the early church was saying this. What does love do? It covers over our mistakes. It covers over our failures. It covers over our shame. It washes it all away. And Jesus gives us that fresh start. And this is the time. This is the time where it is for you to cling to that which is eternal and to let go of all of those things that have been shackling you to our gloom, to our depression, to our brokenness, to our shame, to our guilt, to our past. Time to shake that off and to see the future. To see into that mirror, not dimly anymore, but clearly. To see the gold in you and to see the gold in others. The faith, hope, and love, the image of God that God has placed in every one of us. So as we stand to sing this last song, it is a song of praise. It is a song of glory. It is a song, a word of grace that we are excited about declaring back to God how he loves. Let's stand and sing to our Lord and Savior now.